And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I'm such a great fan of Warren Buffett's quote, to be a success, you only have to do a very few things right as long as you don't do too many things wrong. And that certainly applies to the process of investing in retirement. The things that you might do wrong in retirement versus the early years of accumulating to retirement in many cases are the same, but some are particular uh, to the process of doing the right thing with money in retirement. So I'm going to go relatively briefly over 20 of what I consider to be the most common investment mistakes that retirees make. And uh, I am certainly, if you wish to add one to the list, if you'd be kind enough to email me, paul at paulmerriman.com, uh, I'll add it to the list when I do how to avoid the 30 most common investment mistakes retirees make. And it's important. It's important to know these. It's important to know the right things to do. And there are so few right things to do that it's not all that complex, but there are a lot of reasons why we are attracted to the idea of those things that we should do. Now, let me give you an example. Probably the overarching mistake that is made is simply not having a plan, a written plan. So how do you avoid not having a written plan? You have one. <laughs> you write one. You put one together. And in essence, when you put it together, you will have you will have solved almost all of the common mistakes that retirees make because the plan will address most of these. Now that plan, uh, that plan uh, probably as a base, you could look at that free chapter. You go to paulmerriman.com and 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 you you download the free chapter. I think it's uh, twelve numbers to change your life. And basically, it looks at the things that you should know about risk, about need for return, about need for cash flow, etc. And for many of us, in order to put that good plan together, let's say the great plan together, you're probably going to need the help of a few hours of a, a professional planner, a person who does this, uh, helps people develop these uh, for their livelihood. It isn't complex. It just means there are questions that need to be asked, and we've got to make sure that you're aware of all those questions that need to be asked and answered. But simply to have a plan will, I think, address most of the mistakes that we'll face. For example, the mistake here, that a common mistake, is that people take too much risk. So to avoid that, hmm, you don't want to take too much risk. What, what would that mean, too much risk? Well, a lot of people are still sitting on one major holding, and by the time they get to retirement, and that was a problem I had to face when I knew that it was time for me to move on and be a full-time teacher rather than 
than trying to be involved in administration or or actually working with clients. It's a whole different lifestyle and a different business. And, uh, and so when I made the decision to retire and know that my investments needed to support not only my retirement, retirement years, but also my wife and I wanted to try to maximize what uh, we could safely leave to charities and children, uh, it meant that I had to make some decisions. Did I want to continue to hold my ownership of um, the Merriman Company? Well, it certainly had been a good investment uh, for approximately 30 years. Uh, it uh, certainly looked like it should give me a decent cash flow for retirement and then hopefully some growth for future generations if you want to look at it that way or to even give more if I stayed the course there rather than passing that baton of risk to somebody else. But I concluded after being willing to take a lot of risk almost all of my adult life that it it was time to um, cool my jets and accept a level of risk that is more prudent for a retiree. Now, you know, could the Merriman company like Enron or other companies that have just bit the dust, or even if they don't bite the dust, they become a shadow uh, of themselves and uh, in their most successful days? Well, one never knows that. I mean, could the stock market totally collapse and people decide that uh, that they don't want to have their money in the market anymore, which means they don't need an advisor? Well, who knows? And so I chose to pass that baton of risk to others, younger people who uh, actually, in almost all cases, people helping the, the Merriman Company to grow successfully for the future. It's not that I don't want to be a part of it. In fact, every time I read about something they've done, recently having acquired a, a company that I think has 350 or 400 million under uh, under management, uh, I, I think that's great that they're going to be able to help more people. But I just want to emotionally enjoy it, not financially. So having too much in one company, having too much in equities, period. Now, the S&P 500, if you were depending on living on the S&P 500, there are many scenarios, periods, when if you depended on the S&P 500 to turn out a 5% a year return, which, which is what my wife and I are taking out, that you would have gone broke in a relatively few number of years. Well, I want to see you well diversified and well diversified not only amongst equities, but also away from equities uh, in, uh, into fixed income. And I've done a, a lot of work about distributions and asset allocation on my website. And if you're not familiar with the work at paulmerriman.com, please go to the um, best advice link and there you will see things that have to do with uh, taking too much risk and what to do about it. Now, at the other end of the spectrum pops up mistake number three, and that's taking too little risk. A lot of people feel that if they don't have any money in the stock market at all, 
that that's the safe thing to do. Well, inflation, historically, would uh, teach us that that is not the safe thing to do, that if we're going to live, by the way, for uh, a long time, and remembering a healthy couple at age 97, there's a 25% chance that one will be alive at uh, age 97. There's a 50% chance that one will be alive at age 92. So the money has to last for a long time. And if you take too little risk, then um, literally you can run out of money before you run out of life if you try to maintain a certain lifestyle. So that's a consideration. Think about the people who back in the 80s could get 12% on a T-bill and put their money in T-bills thinking that was a safe place to be for the rest of their life. Many of those people who stayed the course with that decision have moved in with their kids. And by the way, it only takes 20, 30, 40% of your money in equities to be a game changer in terms of going from too little risk to enough. Number four, a lot of people assume that their cost of living will be less after retirement. And I think that's a dangerous assumption to make because a lot of studies show that uh, that a, that a lot of people don't remember the the percentage at this at this point, but that uh, they end up spending as much in retirement as they did uh, while they were working, and that in fact you although there are people who write articles about living on uh, as little as forty five percent of your uh, income that you had uh, while you were working. Uh, and it's it's often said that if you figure on just living on 60 or 70 percent of your uh, salary, that you'll be okay. But I've I've seen a lot of people who turned up turned out spending a lot more money on remodeling than they expected. Uh, also wanted to travel more than they expected, uh, and oftentimes the reason that people will try to figure out how to retire on less is because that's the way that would allow them to retire today, right now. They would just live on less. And I've talked to a a lot of folks that wish they had stayed the course for a couple more years because with another two to five years, it can change the the whole relationship between the lifestyle and, uh, uh, and your investments. Uh, Number five, uh, a lot of people simply take too much out of their investments uh, in retirement. Uh, And, of course, the answer to that is don't do that. (laughs) But what does that mean, don't do that? Well, to begin with, about 23%, according to one study I saw, 23% are taking out, these are retirees, taking out 7% or more. Now, that doesn't shock me because I recently spoke to a gentleman who is worth a lot of money and wants to retire, and the money he wants to retire on, he wants to take out 10% a year. Now, he does have some other assets that he could fall back on if he had to, but taking out 10% is probably not a prudent thing to do. Uh, there were a lot of people, uh, by the end of 1999, 25 years uh, prior to that, the S&P 500 compounded at 
over 17%. So by the end of 1999, people thought, yeah, taking out 10%, a piece of cake. In fact, they believed the S&P 500 for the next decade was going to compound somewhere between 20 and 30%, depending on the survey you looked at. Well, as we know, it was a loss of about 1% a year compounded over that uh, following 10 years after things had been so wonderful for 25 years. So you you need to to be careful about taking out too much. I encourage you to dig into my articles on distributions, again, found under the best advice link. And I show two uh, most popular ways to access money. One is with a fixed distribution adjusted for inflation, and the other is just simply taking out a percentage of what's left over at the end of each year makes a huge difference. And if you can afford to live on that percentage of what's left over at the end of each year, it is one of the greatest luxuries I think you'll ever have in terms of financial luxury in retirement. Number six, a lot of people do not take out their distributions in the most tax-efficient way. Now, I don't give tax advice, and I would encourage you, uh, by the way, I encourage everybody to spend at least as you either are approaching retirement or in retirement, please spend a year with a really good investment advisor. You may not need them after that year, but one of these topics that people should be aware of is there are right and wrong ways of taking money out of your investments in retirement. The most obvious one, of course, would be do you take it out of your IRA or do you take it out of your taxable account? Now, IRAs, of course, for most people are taxable when you take them out as opposed to the other money that was never in a tax-deferred investment. Now, when you take that money out of the IRA, you're going to be, unless it's a Roth IRA, you're going to be taxed at your highest marginal tax rate. On the other hand, if you are liquidating holdings in your taxable portion of your portfolio, you may be taking out investments that have a long-term capital gain uh, effect, uh, tax rate, and uh, and that would be an advantage. So those are big decisions, and not everybody uh, makes them right. I've even uh, talked to people who simply took 50% uh, out of the IRA and 50% uh, out of the taxable portion. Number seven, a lot of people, a lot of people are taking Social Security too early. And again, this is one of those discussions you can have with somebody who could look carefully at your situation. I recently spoke to a gentleman who uh, has not not saved enough, but he is making plans for his retirement and he is figuring out how he can hold on and leave that that Social Security uh, untouched until he's 70 and a half. And uh, it was a marginal call because uh, uh, that means that everything that he does with that money that he has uh, saved up to survive until he reaches 70 and a half, 
uh, will uh, will have to be handled prudently, have to be careful. So uh, if you can wait until you're 70 and a half and you are likely to have a, uh, a, a long life, you certainly come out ahead in most cases having that money, uh, Social Security paid later. Uh, number eight, uh, the question is what to do about a pension. Uh, do you leave the money in the pension uh, and have it, uh, have it uh, um, paid out on a monthly basis for the rest of your life, or do you take that money in cash and roll it over uh, into an IRA? It can be a huge mistake if you don't understand the investment process and you don't know what advisor you're going to use. And if you do know what advisor you're going to use, you don't know how good he really or she really is. Now, for the people who have never invested a substantial amount of money uh, what just scares me to death is that you'll get a sense that you understand the market at a level better than you really do. This was very common in the late 90s after, as I mentioned earlier, the S&P 500 had this long period of great returns and anybody who invested in the S&P 500 could look like a genius um, it would be easy to think that um, you could invest in a way that would reward you and think, and, and think, believe that it would be low risk when, in fact, the risk was very, very high. Not only that the market would go down, but that you just would not have any idea what to do next. So I think before you take the cash and, uh, and think you're going to invest it yourself, especially on a do-it-yourself basis, or especially with a terrible advisor, you better do some research and understand the process and understand how to identify a good advisor. In fact, uh, if I could recommend a free ebook, uh, my ebook you can get at paulmerriman.com, is entitled uh, Get Smart or Get Screwed, How to Select the Best and Get the Most uh, Out of Your Financial Advisor. Number Nine, a lot of people underestimate how long they're likely to live. As I mentioned before, a lot of people are going to live into their 90s. Today, a lot of people are going to live into their, into their hundreds. Now, insurance companies assume you're going to live to 110 when they price a policy to you. And uh, there aren't many people that I know are planning for 110. I'm certainly not. But if you are trying to figure out when do I have enough and you're making the decision based on how long you should live by the statistical numbers, uh, the average, if you will, you may be way underestimating how long you're likely to live. People who have lots of money tend to live longer. People who are taking better care of themselves tend to live longer. And, uh, and so I would certainly uh, look at those, uh, the, in- the insurance tables to, uh, to figure out how long you are, the percentage probabilities that you'll be alive at a certain age. I'm almost 73, and 
the actuarial tables say that uh, I should live another 11 years, and my wife, uh, who's younger than I, will probably you know, pass away at a s- similar age as I will. Um, and and so should I use that as how long the money needs to last? Of course not. So I did a search for probabilities of uh, living to a certain age, which de- led me right to a Vanguard page entitled Plan for a Long Retirement. And then there is a calculator, and I asked the calculator, what are the odds Uh, that I will live for 20 years, and the odds are 12%. Now, I'm 73, and the computer says, or I mean the actuarial tables say that my expected life is about another 11 years. So that would be till 84. On the other hand, there's a 12% chance that I will live to be 93. And I, well, okay, well, what about 15 years? Well, there's a 32% chance that I'll live for 15 more years, and that's 88 instead of, of uh, 80, what did I say, 84 or something. So, so um, maybe that will help you determine what you should use as the period of years you should plan for. I, I guess... If I've got a 12% chance of living for 20 years, uh, number one, I better make sure I'm doing the things to actually allow my body to last that long, uh, which means I've got to clean my act up a little bit. But uh, beyond that, just for planning purposes, it seems like basically uh, kind of an eight to one shot. Uh, that I'm going to live until 93 means that I better prepare for that and financially. So don't underestimate your life expectancy and certainly don't base it just on the average life expectancy. Number 10, um, stay calm during market declines is what you should do. But unfortunately, most people don't. Now, a lot of people do. Maybe I should, maybe I, I can't know that most people don't, but I know that a lot of people don't. And if staying calm during a market decline is, is, is the answer, how do you do that? Well, I think that's a matter of, one, trusting your investments are going to work out for the long term. But, but more importantly is to make sure you've built the portfolio to minimize the downside. Some people, for example, the way that they have gotten over the concern for market declines, even though they, now listen to this, this is pretty neat. They have 100% of their money in stocks and they don't worry. And the reason they don't worry is because because they put enough money into an immediate life annuity that that monthly check from the annuity plus Social Security plus a pension is enough to meet their cost of living, and so they can afford to take the higher risk of an all-equity portfolio without having to lose sleep. The key is to find a way to sleep easy, and for most people, I have found over the years that answer is to have the right amount of fixed income, and the right amount of equity, and a contract with yourself 
to accept a certain amount of loss. Number 11, um, I was guilty. My firm, myself, we were guilty of, of doing this for many years. And I never really saw the fault with it until uh, we hired somebody in our research department and they slapped my hands and said, Paul, you can't do that. That's not fair. And what I did that wasn't fair, never an attempt to mislead anybody, but they said, you cannot build a plan of distributions on flat returns and constant inflation. In other words, if uh let's say over a period of, of 30 years that inflation was 4% a year compounded. But in fact, what happened was the early years inflation was high, the later years inflation was low, and that high and low inflation does have an impact on what happens to the return of securities as well as the return of bonds. And that it is more meaningful to show the results of the distributions based on real returns and real inflation. Now, that still doesn't guarantee the future is going to look like that, but it can be very misleading if you assume either flat returns or constant inflation. When I say flat return, you know, let's say the compound rate of return was 8%, but you just assume you're going to get 8% every year and inflation was 4%, you're going to assume that's 4% every year. It ain't going to happen. And it is more lifelike to build in the actual returns and the actual inflation. Number 12, and this is a tough one because um, a lot of folks are comfortable putting their money all in equities and simply uh, taking the dividends and living on the dividends and letting uh, the equities do whatever they might. If they go down 50%, they go down 50%. And what may come as a surprise to many people who are in an all-equity portfolio, but they are getting dividends of 2 or 3%. Uh, maybe that meets their cost of living. But the reality is is that the loss of 50% uh, has happened a number of times to dividend-based equities. And when that happens, it can be a life changer for people who thought they didn't need anything beyond the dividends uh, to, to, uh, to live on. And then all of a sudden, they're cashing out the equities at a time that equity prices are down substantially. For people that only need 2 or 3% a year and are absolutely uh, not at risk of having to cash in the equities that they're getting these dividends from, then that's a whole different uh, situation. But I think it can be a huge mistake to count on those dividends alone without the help of the principal value of those securities. And of course, anytime you're liquidating things when they're down 50%, um, you're at the risk then of having whatever you get out of that being the, the entire source of your future uh, income. And once bit by equities like that, sometimes people will never trust equities again. And, uh, and so... 
they're put into a situation where they now have to, with half the money they had, go into fixed income instruments, bonds, etc., and that just isn't going to cut and, and supply them with their cash flow needs. This happened uh, to investors uh, in the 30s and the 40s up until about uh, 53, where uh, people actually refused to put any money in equities because they had been so badly hurt by equities in, in the Depression that uh, the only way that they were willing to buy equities is if the inter- the dividends uh, were equal to what they would get in bonds. Then they were willing to take the risk of stocks. Uh, and so they sat, those people did, they sat for decades in an all-fixed-income portfolio because they were spooked from the market, uh, theoretically, for the rest of their life. But they finally kind of came to their senses and uh, started putting money back in the market. So be careful what you assume about the uh, source of income from dividends. Uh, Number 13, a lot of people don't have any international stocks in their portfolio. I'm going to be doing a, a, a podcast and an article about how much to have in international stocks. and I'm going to do that in the coming weeks. But his history shows that by adding internationals to the portfolio, that it actually produces a better overall long-term return, not always short-term, and it has slightly lower risk by using both the internationals and the U.S. together. Now, recently, internationals have not done well, and so it's easy for people to say, "Ah, well, I wouldn't want any of those in my portfolio. The reality is, if there is a way that you can get a better return by adding internationals, if there is a way that you can get a better return by being in funds that have lower expenses, if there's a way you can uh, do better by being in equity funds that don't have much turnover, all of those ways that give you a chance to make more money The other side of that is then you could theoretically put more money in fixed income because sometimes one way to reduce risk is by simply making more in a dependable way than you would have otherwise, which means when you can make more, you can have more bonds in the portfolio. Number 14. Focus on what can be controlled. I don't know how many percentage-wise, how many investors sit around worrying about stuff they have no control of, but it's a big number. And the answer to that is figure out what you can control. You can't control what's happening in Brexit. You can't control what's happening with inflation. You can't control what's happening with the stock market. You can control how much equity you're going to have in your portfolio. You can control what the expenses are in your portfolio. You can control the tax implications of a passive versus an active portfolio. You can control how much diversification you want spread over how many different equity asset classes, all within your control. 
if you just focus on those, you will likely avoid one of the most common investment mistakes. Number 15. Investors sit, most of them, by the way, with asset classes or investments that are unproductive historically. Now, the reason it's important to say historically there is because I can't know what will be productive in the future. But I do know that people who are sitting with all of their money in one stock do not have a stock that has a predictive future in terms of productivity. Just the opposite. It's almost totally unpredictable because individual companies, a lot of them can go down while the market's going up. And certainly it's unproductive if you are in asset classes that have a history of not doing well. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have growth in your portfolio, but I meet a lot of people who are way, way overweighted to growth when growth has a history of lower returns than value. Gold, another example of historically an unproductive investment. Now, somebody's going to say, yeah, but I got in gold and I made 50% in a year. Yeah, and I met somebody who won a lottery, too. I want to know what the, what, the, what the odds are of gold for the risk that I take being productive over a very long period of time. And then there is number 16, waiting, waiting, waiting to take action. Coming up with excuse after excuse to take action. If you really can see that your problem is that you're simply procrastinating because either you don't know what to do and yet maybe you don't even know what, what, that you can trust what other people want you to do, well, let me recommend something. Read some books that have to do with asset allocation, whether it's William Bernstein or Larry Swedrow or myself and others to learn about asset allocation and learn about different ways to access the market, dollar cost averaging in, lump sum in, uh, investing in, in, the, in the process. And if you're not sure that you can trust the person who's giving you the recommendations, then you better make sure that, that whoever's working with you agrees with the things that are in the books that you're reading that seem to make sense. Because you have to take steps to stop the procrastination. Many people who are procrastinating like that are sitting in money, market funds, or short-term bonds because any decision that implies risk is just too much for them to take or to make. Which leads to number 18, and that is people get their advice from the wrong source. So the answer is to find sources that history can say would be in your best interest. In today's business, those are people who are fiduciaries, who by law are obligated to act in your best interest, obligated legally. Now, they could be unqualified and be called a fiduciary. That's a problem, which means you need to somehow identify 
that that person who is working for you, your advisor, are they looking to Wall Street for their advice? Are they making it all up on their own? Or can they show you how they're using the academic community as their source of advice? When I was an advisor, if somebody wanted to question where I got all my ideas, because I've never had an original one, I can point them to dfaus.com. D as in dog, F as in Frank, A.com. And there you can read some of the work of what of what I think is the finest research from the research from the academic community. Yes, you 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 can do that and get an idea what the right thing is to do. Number eighteen. A lot of investors, particularly those that aren't too savvy are easily slow sold investments that are not liquid. Now, of course, they'll always tell you that at that point, when you're wanting to get into this thing and they're wanting to sell it, they will suggest that there's a great market for this. After all, people are wanting to buy it right now. But when things go awry... Markets in illiquid investments tend to drive up and the to dry up, and the only people who are there to make an offer for those investments are people who are looking to buy it super, super cheap. And here's the reason it's so easy to fall into this trap. And the reason, and I think that you want to avoid this big mistake. Don't ever buy anything that isn't publicly traded. Now, that means that I'm recommending you go out and buy individual stocks because they're publicly traded. But mutual funds at, at the end of each day can be bought or sold at the very same price. No commission in, no commission out. Now, I'm talking about no-load funds there. A load fund, you have to pay a commission to get in, normally 5 to 6%, but then no commission to get out. But when you get into investments that are illiquid, that aren't traded actively on an open market, and by the way, if you're in ETFs, exchange-traded funds, then you can buy and sell during the hours that the stock market is open. But why would people sell you something that isn't liquid? Well, it's not before because you can make more money in them, because there are almost always other investments they could sell you or recommend you buy that, in fact, make as much or more. What's unique about these illiquid products is they have some of the highest commissions in the whole industry. And the reason they have high commissions is because they have to be bribed to make the sale. And in the process of bribing, they want the salesperson to say something that would make you buy the product and they have to sell it. They have to pay them a lot in order for them to uh, be able to work that hard and take that much risk. I remember once a company, insurance company, 
came to me, wanted me to manage a product for them, and I explained that that it just didn't make sense because the commission was going to be completely, was going to wipe out any chance for any long-term profit. And they said, don't worry. You put enough a high enough commission uh, in these products, and the salespeople will sell anything. And that's coming from the top. Don't give up liquidity. Number 19, and this one is really difficult because people do like to share what they've got with those that they love. And I'm certainly not suggesting that you, you should not help those that you love when they're in need. But what I'm saying is don't give away too much. Here's one of the great things an advisor can do is to be the go-between between a parent and their kids who need money and want money and think that mom and dad have way more money than they need and surely they wouldn't want me to struggle. And parents can be such suckers. And I'm one of them, certainly. I've done some some uh, illogical things with children that I love. But if you give too much, that's the key. A lot of people give up their retirement. I mean, literally, give up their retirement, the things they could have had, the lifestyle they could have had, because they felt it was their obligation to send their child to any school they wanted to go to. Didn't even matter what the uh, what what the uh, um, what major they were going to take. If those kids wanted to go to a school and that would make them happy, sure, of course, we'll pay for that. And then they work an extra five, sometimes ten years. So, well, and also, I'll, I'll share a story that that uh, was was so interesting. A, a couple. I think they were from North Carolina. Uh, they made real good money. They didn't have a lot of money saved. They had enough to get by on in retirement. But the reason they didn't have very much saved is because they were huge givers. They were huge givers to the church. They were huge givers to to nonprofits that that made the local community a better place to live. But then when they retired and they didn't have their big income and they didn't have a whole lot of money in their investments to make it possible for them to give like they did before, they became outcasts. People were mad at them. People who depended on them to, to, to support certain projects that they had helped support in the past. And they actually got snubbed by people that they thought, really cared about them. And I'm not saying don't give. My wife and I give probably 30% of what our annual income is to live on. And, and, and that's okay because we oversaved. But if I hadn't oversaved, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. And I would have to adjust that. And admittedly, I wouldn't be invited to as many parties that make me feel special. Um, but be thoughtful. 
Be thoughtful that, that in your giving, you don't give up what you could have in your life. And that couple and down in North Carolina, wherever they were from, um, I told them to do this, to tell every one of those organizations that yes, 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 I will give you that money that I promised you. I will make a commitment. As a matter of fact, if I gave $5,000 a year, uh, I've probably got 20 years left in my life, then uh, I'm going to, until I die, I'm going to give you $5,000 a year. And when I die is when you'll get it. Because I might not have the money to give you $5,000 a year, and I've got to be prudent to make sure that I at least take care of myself and my wife, because I don't think you will. I mean, I don't expect you to if I run out of money before I run out of life. But yes, I'll make that commitment. There are four charities that I feel so strongly about, and before my kids get any money, before anything else, you will all get the back pay that I owe you. And what could an organization say? What more could they ask? In fact, having worked with boards for years, people who are willing to give part of what they have left over at the end of their life, that's golden. That's golden because you're not asking for blood today. You're asking for something at the end of their life that will continue to do good work. Anyway, just be careful that you don't give away too much. And number 20, spend enough. Most people who have lived a life of frugality and then have way more than they need have a very difficult time spending enough. I'm one of those people. And it took me a long time to let go and just spend. So as I've told my listeners many times, my wife and I, the first of each year, we take out 5% of what we have invested. And we use that to be our, our lifestyle. And if we don't spend it, we give it away. And I've noticed that we've been doing a good job of spending. There was a time when I would never even think about flying first class. Never. Why would anybody do that, I thought. And now at this ripe old age where there's something nice to be able to sit down with my briefcase and a project and sit in a nice, big, comfortable seat. And... Uh, it, it's it's a it's a wonderful way to go, but I I spent a lot of years delaying that gratification so I could have that gratification now. And so I encourage all people without outspending their savings for retirement, spend enough. Uh, it's the old thing: would you rather spend it or have your son-in-law spend it after you're gone? or your daughter-in-law spend it after you're gone. Whatever it takes to let, help you let go and spend more, 
So people who are taking out 3% a year, in almost every case I've run into people who are taking out 3%, I have said, look how safe it is to take out 4 Isn't there something that one of you want to do? Where is your bucket list? And I remember years ago, I haven't told this story for for a decade probably, but this was such a great story and such a great success for me in, in a way. But I was visiting some people in Spokane and uh, going through their financial situation. And they had way more money than they needed at the rate that they were spending their money. And I said, isn't there something in life that a little more money would help you? Is there, is there not a bucket list? Is there not a dream? And he finally admitted that he that he'd always wanted a motorcycle. I mean, that is, if you, if you saw their financial situation, you would ask, why would he not just go out and buy a motorcycle? And she had always wanted to go to Paris. And he wouldn't go with her. So she never went. Well, by the end of that session... She was emotionally on her way to Paris, and he was buying a motorcycle. And some years later, when we talked again about that conversation, he owned three motorcycles, and he was about to go on a trip down to Las Vegas where a bunch of people were going motorcycle riding together on rented motorcycle bikes. And she had been traveling the world and he had maybe begrudgingly but but as a good sport gone with her on a lot of those trips boy spend enough well i hope one of those 20 will help you make a change uh, to make your life better whether it's the life you lead the life you help others lead and live or what you leave to others or what peace of mind it might bring uh, there are the 20 most common investments, mistakes retirees make, and how to avoid them. Thanks for listening. And this is one of those podcasts you might pass along to some other people that you know are struggling with some of these very problems. Thank you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.